Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. It's good to have you with me, Ben. Good to be here. Today we're covering Matthew 4 and Luke 4 through 5 which is different from last time we got together to record, and I was ready to record the reading for the following week. Right. (laughs) And we had to reschedule. Yeah. Well, some of the the parallels to these chapters, we covered a little bit in the last episode, which was Mark chapter one. These chapters kind of delve into some more detail that Mark chapter one doesn't really get into. Yeah. So reminding the listener that Mark serves as a source for both Matthew and Luke who come later and and use Mark as a source. And so we're going to find in Matthew and Luke stuff that's not in Mark. We'll find stuff that's in Mark and then we'll find stuff that's not in Mark that's additional. And so we did the temptation in Mark 1, 12 through 13, the temptation of Christ. And now we're going to cover it. That's where we're starting today with Matthew and Luke in chapters 4 There is no such story in the Gospel of John, right? There's no temptation of Christ in John. So reading from the King James translation from, I'm going to go with Matthew. It's probably earlier than Luke. Luke, they're either around the same time, around what, 85, 90 Mm -hmm. CE? Yeah, late first century. Or Luke is second century, but probably around the same time as Matthew. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, Now, right away, we're going to stop and talk about this devil, right? We found that in Matthew, Matthew's using in a few verses, several different names. I mean, when I say names, I mean nouns, right? Having to do with this, I'm going to say with what is a part of ourselves, right? Part of our own souls that falsely accuses us or that accuses us in whatever way. So here in this case, we have what, Diabolos? Yeah, we've got Diabolos. There's also this concept, right? The tempter or the one who tempts. And then later we get Satan. Now, these are all conflated and personified within this personage of Satan, of the devil that within our tradition, we all think of as this one person. But these concepts and these terms have different origins. They come from different religious traditions and cultures. And here we're kind of seeing the convergence of all of these within this this person within the New Testament at this time. And so that it's a very interesting, again, confluence of these things. Yeah. So let's talk about, since we already stopped and we're only one verse in, you have diabolo. This comes from, this is a secular Greek term that is actually, I mean, it's in Aristophanes, right? One of the Greek comedians. It's around the time of Aristotle, you know, 300-ish, somewhere in there, BCE. It's a secular Greek term at the time that this is being written. Slander or false accuser, one who is unjustly criticizing to hurt or malign, condemning to sever a relationship. That's the idea of Diabolos. Then you have Hasatan. 
This is an actual member of the court of the king of Persia. Right? We saw this in Job. We went into this in great detail in Job. At this point within the text, that's that it's removed from that, but that's the origin of the, the concept. Exactly. And so in the in the Persian king's court, this is an accuser. He has the job that we saw in Job to go around and you know, check things out and see what's going on and what's wrong, what's going, you know, what's going on that shouldn't be going on and let the king know. And so there's not necessarily false accusing there, but they're still accusing. And and hasatan means the accuser. That's the the Hebrew. And so at this point, again, personified as Satan, right? With a capital S, where often what we see in the text in the Bible, whether it's in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the Greek, whether Old or New Testament, we have Hasatan. So we're getting the Greek equivalent of an article, right? A definite article, the Satan, meaning this isn't a, a name. It's not a person. It's a title. It's a, a job, right? And then we have, we'll have later on in Matthew a few times, and also in Mark, we'll see Bizelbub. That was the name of a god of, you know, one of the ancient Israelites' neighbors. You know, they gave that name of a, a god, a foreign god, to this accuser, right? Because, you know, just to to malign or defame that god or that name, right? And so that literally means Lord of the Flies. And then there's the serpent, while we're on the topic, right? The serpent all the way back in the garden. Nobody ever said that the devil or Satan or anything like that was in the garden. What we got was a serpent. And we know that's a symbol, right, for chaos. But I think we can say the serpent is a trickster in that story. There are other tricksters. Jacob is a trickster, right? Mm-hmm. And then, by the way, I just said devil. Devil actually comes from Diabolos. So Diabolos is the Greek word. Devil comes from that. That's what we say in English now. So all of these things get personified. The idea of personification is not unfamiliar. The idea, for example, that Sophia is wisdom, right? Wisdom is Sophia is an actual person. I don't think the ancients, Ben, I don't think they thought that these really were persons. I think it's in our day that people are taking these things literally, right? Mm -hmm. I think they knew better. Do you think that was a concept already within the writers of this text? Or do you think that they really had started thinking of them in a more personified way? My reading is, you know, obviously, if you read the story of the temptation we're going into, it looks like you have two persons Mm -hmm. talking with each other, right? There's Jesus, and then there's this separate person. I'm saying, no, I don't think there's a separate person. I think we're talking about a dialogue that's internal. Okay. In Jungian terms, Carl Jung called this the shadow. And we've talked about shadow work on our sister podcast with Morgan Aldis on Latter-day Contemplation. We all have this accuser, right? The one that says you're an imposter every time we're podcasting. The one that <laughs> says you're not good enough, you know, whatever. Falsely accuses us. We have to deal with that. So we have Jesus going out on this vision quest like experience in the wilderness where he's having to confront his own doubts and his own shadow. And this is, I know this is maybe controversial for, for some, right? To, to think of it this way. And by the way, I don't know this. I wasn't there. I'm just telling you my reading. These ways of looking at it aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Like, no, you could analyze it in one way and you could analyze it in another way. And, and both can be accurate or true or, or helpful, I guess I could say. Right. One of the things that comes out to me interesting here is that this term devil, you know, the false accuser becomes tied to the concept of temptation. Right. And it's like, okay, what is it about falsely accusing someone that tempts them into sin? And 
I think that's a fascinating thought exercise. Oh, yeah. To sort of meditate on that. Okay, how is it that if I were falsely accused of something, that could actually lead me, tempt me into sin? And how does Jesus show me in this instance? What does this story tell me about how a person responds to that or how you work your way through that kind of thing? Anyway, I think that's a very helpful exercise. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So if in your own psyche, there's something that tells you you're not good enough, don't even bother showing up, then you would be tempted not to show up, wouldn't you? Yeah. If you believed it. Yeah. Or to act in a way that is in accordance with that false accusation. Oh, that is really who I am. I'm not really this other. Yeah. And whether that's coming from, again, within you or without you, because if other people said it about you, everybody thinks you're a liar. Well, why bother, you know, telling the truth? Everybody already assumes you're a liar anyway, right? We've all experienced this, whether from within our own soul or from without, you know, of being accused in that way. So by the way, my reading means that Jesus doesn't go out to be tempted. Right. He, right. Verse one, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's his whole point and purpose and reason for going into the wilderness. I read it as he goes in the wilderness to be with God. And in order to be with God, what gets in your way? That's what gets in your way, right? What's yeah. going to get in your way of being with God is you're not worthy to be with God. The idea that you're not worthy, whether it's told to you from the outside or the inside, makes no difference to me. It's a false idea. Mm. It's a false accusation. You're already always worthy. God is waiting for you to knock so he can open the door, right? What I see happening here, Christopher, then is an emptying. And we get this literally with the first scenario of fasting, right? And I think that- oh, yeah. You know, he's he's physically emptying, and then we get these other cases. But what I love about you saying, you know, to be with God, Christopher, is that you, you don't always agree with Joseph Smith, but here you do. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So the Joseph Smith translation says that he went to be with God. Yeah. Which, again, I don't think these two concepts are mutually exclusive, right? In order to be with God, you do have to confront in, in a way, integrate your shadow, have to deal with those false accusations, figure out, you know, process it. Yeah. So I'll just keep reading from Matthew. So from verse two, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now here we have the 40 days, right? Just like the children of Israel in the desert, just like the period of time between the crucifixion and the ascension. And it's a symbolic number, right? This is what happens. Symbolic of of a generation, a completion of a task, right? You know, the 40 years in the wilderness, that that's complete. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, I was reminded right away by the stones of the stones where Jesus says, or was it John the Baptist, right? He says, don't say you don't need to get baptized because you're children of Abraham. God can take these stones and turn them into children. Yeah, yeah. That came to my mind. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now, if I'm comparing with, um, you know, with Luke, we're reading from Matthew. One of the things that shows up is that because if we're going to talk about the temple, it's going to be political in significance. The people running the temple are there under the auspices of Rome in some sense, right? They're, They're actually chosen by Rome. And of course, the king himself is chosen by Rome. So one of the authors puts that last and the other one not last, so as not to emphasize, or you de-emphasize it if it's not last, right? But I'm reading from Matthew. 
Yeah, so Luke and Matthew switch these two positions. You know, one has the temple first, the other has the mountain first, and so forth. One of the things that I didn't say going back to verse one again, Christopher, was just this concept of wilderness, right? We've talked about this a lot, but you know, some experiences can only be had in the wilderness, both both literally and figuratively. Some things can only be found where there is nothing. And there seems to be something of this shadow integration going on here with Jesus. He's dealing with things physical and spiritual, which, like, like we said, for me, includes the psychological. Right. And for me, I'm going to back up too, Ben, because you know you asked me about my reading of, or maybe you didn't ask me, but I shared my, my reading of, does Jesus know, you know, when does he realize you know, what he's, what's going on with him, right? What, who he is and what he's up to. And it seems to be somewhere around between his baptism and now, right? So if, if you're going to have a spiritual awakening, which is what looks like is happening here, right? An epiphany. It's Mm -hmm. going to happen, right? It's going to happen in the wilderness. You're going to be, how is it that Dante puts it? Halfway through our life or midway through our life, I found myself in a dark wood. Yeah. Right? He's about 30. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So where do you begin to have a spiritual awakening? It's in that moment that you realize, oh, maybe I don't actually know as much as I thought I did. Maybe I'm not as confident as I thought I was in terms of my knowledge of God, my relationship with God, my experience of God. And so you come into that wilderness. That's that moment when you find yourself in the dark woods. That's the beginning of an ascent. And that's the whole point, right? With Dante is going to go down through um, in the inferno, the hell, to then begin the ascent. You always begin with the descent. Whether we want to say that Jesus is descending into his own soul or whether he's being pulled down in some sense from the outside, when he's set on the pinnacle of the temple, then the accuser says, if thou be the son of God, cast yeah. thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, in one of the stories of how James dies, he was actually taken to the pinnacle of the temple and thrown down. Hmm. There could be something to that. By the time you know this is written, I don't know if that has happened. That could depend on when it was written. And that's just one of the versions of you know how he died. Yeah. Well, this if, Christopher, that that Satan posits here at each of these times, right? This if, this is calling Jesus's identity into question. You know, part of the emptying is the questioning of our identity. And so, again, he goes out into the wilderness to empty of that and and really find it. And so, that's where that, that understanding becomes refined in a sense. Also, you know, you could look at this alchemically as well. Yeah. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto them, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now I remember, it looks like it's not here in Matthew, I remember from Luke, there's a line that concluded that says something like, I can do this because all of this is given to me and I can give it to you. It's mine, so so I can give it to you. Recognize me. Yeah. So if you'll recognize me, this worshiping isn't a religious thing. It's if you'll bow down and recognize that I am Lord over this world, then I I can give it to you, right? Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. 
Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I think I have just one last comment on this, Ben, and that is that, again, thinking about how I'm reading it, do I read this as this is something that really happened with this? Again, if I already don't have someone outside of Jesus that he's talking to, then the whole thing can be an internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. When I look at Jesus and and what looked to me like the most authentic statements of Jesus, and I'm basing this, you know, on what the scholars have said about how we can identify the the oldest and the most original and most authentic sources and sayings, they don't look like this. There, there's not so much of this quoting scriptures back and forth. This looks like something you'd see on a street corner with a Baptist, you know? Sure. I've experienced this myself with the Baptist on a street corner, you know, maybe between proof texting. Baptist and a Latter-day <laughs> Saint. Yeah, proof texting, this kind of thing. That's what I see here. So sure. I don't take it too seriously in that way. But I do think what this represents, right, what what this story is teaching us is something about, as you said, emptying ourselves to discover our true identity, the divine within us, and having to do that integration work, right, that shadow work mm-hmm. to get there. So at least here in Matthew, the culmination of this experience is on the mountain. That fits the sort of the religious landscape as well. That is where the culmination of these religious traditions happens, on a mountain. So, this happens in Moses chapter 1 in the Pearl Great Price, right? When he's up on the mountain and he has the back and forth with God and then Satan and then God. And then we have this same sort of motif that shows up in our temple ceremony as well. The Satan is cast out, right? And then the angels come and minister. So, same concept going on here that we can draw parallels from if you want to try to delve into it a little deeper. Yeah. So, as we go through then into the next pericope, it turns out, well, when I say the next pericope, what happens next in the story, if I'm bringing all these gospels together and looking at the parallels, you have the beginning of Jesus's public ministry according to John, right? So, I have to now read John if I if I want to go with his version of the story this is what happens and we already did that right this is what happens next is John 1 mm. 35 through 51 so that's according to John that includes the marriage at Cana the sojourn at Capernaum the first journey to Jerusalem which for him for John includes the cleansing of the temple as discussed last time that probably didn't happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry it would have gotten him crucified a lot faster a lot sooner yeah so for clarification what you're saying Christopher is that these writers of these gospels, their purpose in telling these stories was in order to to give us the teachings of Jesus within a digestible story, not to necessarily tell us this is exactly how it happened day by day, right? Right. And so where we're actually going through this, we're looking at it more as this is these are all the things that happen, right? And so as I line up the gospels side by side, I can go through and see, okay, this is what happens next in the story, but that's according to again. John. And so we have Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem, his discourse, you know, with Nicodemus, all of this covered in our next episode. Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem, all of this we'll not get to until next time. So we're not reading this in an order because the curriculum has us reading by chapters as the smallest division, then we can't have this kind of side-by-side comparison that we're trying to do here. Jesus's ministry in Judea, John's testimony of Christ, this takes dividing up the text more into the actual stories. And so then when we get to the journey into Galilee, which is in also in John next time, 4, 1 through 3, here we have it in chapter 4 of Matthew and Luke. I'll read from Matthew again. 
Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. There's a discourse with a woman in Samaria and John, not part of Matthew, Mark, Luke. And so now we come to Galilee and his ministry in Galilee. All three of the evangelists, Matthew, Luke, and John, have this in their chapter 4, whereas we covered it in Mark in chapter 1 already. Reading from Matthew, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in other words, change your mind. See things differently because God is coming closer to you, right? Turn around and come to God. Yeah, Right. Something like that. Now, in Luke, there's less going on, right? I'm reading from Matthew where there's more, but these are parallel again. Now we have Jesus preaching at Nazareth, but only in Luke at this point. This shows up later in Matthew in chapter 13. So I'm reading from Luke now, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And this is how it's done. You stand up to read, you sit down to teach. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? This is a a moment where I wanted to pause, right? (laughs) Is this not Joseph's son? Hmm. Where are we going with this? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, and this was a common proverb at the time, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you. By the way, that verily translates the Greek amen. We've been using amen at the end, right? And we say amen means so be it. It could also be read thus it is, right? Verily. Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, the Greek doesn't read in his own country, right? It just says no prophet is accepted in their country, right? In the, in the prophet's own country. Anthropos is the Greek. It doesn't mean man. It means human being, right? So no prophet, no prophetess is accepted in his or her own country. Remember, there are prophetesses. We had in Luke 2.36, Anna. And of course, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Noadiah were all Old Testament prophetesses. So Jesus continues in verse 25, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. 
and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. I'm going to stop myself there. How do you read these previous verses, these stories that Jesus is telling from the Old Testament, Ben? So it's interesting because I would think, I guess, that Jesus proclaiming himself the Messiah would make them upset. They don't seem to really care that much about that. What they really get upset about is him saying that God is blessing the Gentiles in these times of crisis, in these times of need. God is actually giving blessings to the Gentiles because the Israelites weren't, maybe the word isn't deserving, but he seems to be highlighting the fact that the Jews weren't accepting the actual prophets, and it was the Gentiles that did. And that makes them very upset. I can see that. You know, I read this and I thought, it looks to me like Jesus is talking here about what in, I think it's James one twenty seven, what he calls religion pure and undefiled. Yes. And I may have said those words out of order, right? We're, we're, we're talking here about widows. We're talking about famine, right? Hunger. I think yours is a better reading. But I'm just going to bring in this reading that I saw, right, just for the sake of of making the point, right, that whether it's you read it, Ben, that the Lord is blessing the Gentiles and not the Jews, or whether it's the focus is on you guys didn't do anything about these people who are hungry, or you didn't mm-hmm. do anything about the, the lepers or whatever, right, then their reaction is they're filled with wrath verse 29, and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. So these guys, are they want to kill this guy, right? Yeah. You you don't come in here and say these things to us. I don't know that they weren't upset that, that he called himself the Messiah. I'm also not sure that he called himself the Messiah. I see different readings possible here. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it does seem, though, when he reads those scriptures, which from Isaiah were specifically mentioning the Messiah, right? That he has anointed me. And then he sits down and says, This scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Like, that is a pretty blatant declaration to me that he's saying, I'm, I'm the fulfillment of this scripture, right? Now, it's not clear to me whether we're talking about the Messiah or a Messiah or I am Messiah, right? Right. There's some ambiguity with the articles here, but despite the fact, you know, he is still claiming that title of Messiah in some way with these verses. And while the people may be put out a little bit, again, what gets them angry and murderous is him telling them that you guys don't accept prophets. Think about all these examples when you didn't accept prophets and they had to go to the Gentiles. That's going to happen again. And they're like, you know, well, you're not a prophet, so we can kill you. <laughs> yeah, the way the story is told, it's happening now, right? That's, yeah. that's what this story is about. Yeah. And yet, they don't seem that upset. I just don't see him calling himself the Messiah or, and them hearing that and not being upset about that. So either they heard him differently than you, Ben. Or they're upset with him, not just because sure. of what he said about the Gentiles, but also because of it's escalation. Yeah, an es- okay, that's it, buddy. You're out of here. <laughs> so now we go to the teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, but we can't read from Matthew anymore because it's not there. 
So I'm reading from Luke 4, 31 through 32. And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And now we have the healing of the demoniac, also in Luke, also not in Matthew. First of all, casting out demons and healing people too. That's another part of the story in this week's reading, right? This is something that's happening in Jesus's time and place. It's happening by people who are close to God, who have power from God, who God recognizes as, you know, even a voice from heaven as his son. And this comes down to us. This is attested in in writings that come down to us. So it's not that Jesus is the only one. So we might not say it's common, but it's not uncommon. Right. It's I, I'm going to say it's fairly common. This is what's happening. You know, people mm-hmm. are casting out demons. I don't know if there are demons, but I do know that people were casting out demons at that time, right? Because that's mm-hmm. attested. Yeah. Whether there were demons or not, I cannot say I wasn't there. And in the synagogue, there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. By the way, we did read this in Mark, right? This was in Mark 1, 23 through 28. We did cover it in Mark. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. So not only is this happening in Jesus' time and place, but this is how you do it. We have that attested too, that this is exactly how you do it. I'm a little amazed that they were amazed since this is known, you know, that this is how it's done, but this is what they say. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves saying, what a word is this? For with authority and power, he commandeth the unclean spirits and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Now we have the story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in Mark and the sick that are healed in the evening, and none of this shows up in these Gospels, right, in in the reading this week. But then when we get to Capernaum, which we also covered in Mark, not in Matthew, not in John, but here in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 43, we read, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also for therefore am I sent. You can imagine nobody would want him to go anywhere else, right? And if he did, that they would follow him, right? Mm -hmm. Especially later when he feeds him. Right. (laughs) Right. So now Luke 4.44, and he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. This is also covered in Matthew 4.23. But the next story, the miraculous drought of the fish, isn't in Matthew. It's only in Luke. So Luke 5.1 through 11, and it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is just a local term for the same Sea of Galilee. It's just another name that was used locally for the Sea of Galilee, which again is an inland freshwater lake. Yeah, typically we use the term sea to connote like a body of salt water, but in this case it's not, so a lake is, is a better word. Have you been there, Ben? Yes, I have been there, at least on the Jordan side. I jumped off a cliff into that lake. Oh, I haven't been in the lake, but I I have been by it and we took pictures, you know, like overlooking it, but we're on the Jordan side. I was on the other side and uh, I did, I jumped off a cliff into that lake. Wow. Like the pigs, huh? Different setting, same action, (laughs) right? 
and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Again, sitting down to teach, right? Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now I'm going to pause here. The sinful man, one of the things we've done, Ben, we've been doing this, you know, with Latter-day Contemplation, with Latter-day Peace Studies Presents, Come Follow Me, is to take some of the most theologically loaded, and when I say loaded, I mean, okay, I'm probably mixing metaphors. They're theologically loaded terms. They have a lot of baggage, right? And so I looked into the Greek of this, you know, this sinful man. And so sinful here, it's translating a word that means someone who's an error. Mm. As a matter of fact, it shows up, the same word is used by Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics. It's not a religious term, right? So in religion, it becomes a religious term, right? And this has nothing to do, by the way, with with hamartia, the the missing the mark, right? The archery term, right, that's used in Hebrew. Here, we're translating a word that just means someone who's in error. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Now, I don't know if you feel it, Ben, there seems to be a little bit of a joke here. Fear Mm -hmm. not. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. It helps maybe to see the joke. I really do think it's a joke. And and because it's a joke, the chosen Jesus came to my mind from YouTube. Uh-huh. Right. Fear not. From henceforth thou shalt catch men. The verb that's used here actually has to do with catching something live. Right? So you're not it's not about dead fish, it's about living men. And by the way, it's not men. These are human beings, right? The King James Version doesn't use inclusive language, right? And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. This is a common motif, right? You just leave your profession, whatever it was you were doing. Just walk away. And you follow. Because you're talking about, again, a change of mind. Yeah. Right? Jesus is calling people to repent, meaning to change their mind. Metanoia is a change of mind. Immediately. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. You come right now. Yeah. And so they do. And we'll see stories where, you know, where people want to go do things like bury the dead first, and we'll see what he says about that. You know, I've thought a lot about this this catching the fish story and, you know, the nets breaking because there's there's so much and have to fill two boats and everything. And obviously, I I think there's more going on here than I'm pulling out of it. But one of the main points for me becomes that Jesus is demonstrating to them, look, uh, you can be provided for by just, for lack of a better term, the snap of my fingers. So come follow me. We've got more important work to do. You don't have to worry about providing for yourself. That's going to be taken care of because at any moment, you know, I can provide for you. And that kind of seems to be what's going on here to me. Christopher, what do you see? 
I like that, Ben. And, and, you know, if we think about what that actually looks like, although, you know, there's the feeding of the 5,000, we could maybe say that's an exception to what I was about to say. So when I look at what this actually looks like, Jesus goes around, and this is his project. He goes around eating with people and healing people and casting out demons. We've covered already the casting out demons and healing people. And we'll and we'll see more of that, right? We're not finished with it. But what is this, you know, eating with people all about? He's going to have his his disciples go out without a walking stick, which, you know, it could at least be a defensive weapon. There are dogs to worry about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to have any impression that you have a weapon because a defensive weapon can be used for offense too, right? You're not going to worry about what you're going to eat. That's going to be taken care of. You're going to go, as it were, as if you were a Buddhist monk with a bull begging from door to door. What Jesus and his disciples do is they go among the people and they put themselves in the people's own hands. So they're actually going to commune with the people. They're going to eat with them and they're going to break rules in doing this, right? They're going to break Jewish purity culture rules, right? They're going to eat with people they're not supposed to eat with. And so I continue to read now from Luke because it's not in Matthew, the cleansing of the leper from Luke 5, 12 through 16. And it came to pass, and we did cover it in Mark 1, 40 through 45 in a previous episode. And it came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And I guess it was in, it must've been in Mark where we covered it, that it said that Jesus was either annoyed that he got asked this, or he was okay with it. And there are different readings, meaning different manuscripts that give us different readings, right? Yeah, they were contradictory. Like one was compassion and one was anger. <laughs> it's just Right. And, and then of course, you know, what happens next? He says, okay, fine, I'll do it, but don't tell anybody. And then he goes off and tells everybody, <laughs> right? Yeah. So he could have been annoyed because this is what keeps happening, right? <laughs> I keep doing this and I keep telling people not to tell, and then they go tell, and then he can't even move, right? Verse 13, and he put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will. Be thou clean, and immediately the leprosy departed from him. Immediately, right? And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much more went there a fame abroad of him, and a great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So I want to talk about leprosy, Ben. Leprosy, it's not clear exactly what it is. The, the word, you know, as it was seen back then, what they're saying is leprosy. Fast forward to today and you would have a number of conditions. Sure. Yeah, leprosy for them is just any skin disease, essentially. Right. And and they believed that this made the person impure, meaning in a ritualistic sense, right? They're ritually impure. And they also thought that these things were contagious and, and they're not, right? So there's that. So they thought they shouldn't be around these people. You can't talk to these people. Don't look at them. Don't touch them, right? Stay away from them. They're impure. And so what does Jesus do? He goes to the people, uh, or he lets them come to him, one or the other, and he heals them. And I brought this up in the last episode, and I, I mentioned Marcus Borg as putting forth this view. I read something that says that maybe I misread Marcus Borg, and I wasn't really able to go back and reread Marcus Borg and find that, but I did reread him some, and I found that whether or not the distinction is one that he would apply to Jesus, that there is a distinction between healing and curing. One is social and the other is physical. So healing is social. Mm -hmm. 
and curing is physical. Mm. Healing is happening here. Curing may be happening too. I don't know, but there's definitely healing. And that's what we can see here, right? So when Jesus is willing to bring in people who are outcasts from society and be in society with them, especially being who he is, someone of his stature doing this, then he heals them by that very act. Yeah. They're healed. He's restoring their status in society, so to speak. Exactly. You know, the, it became the assumption that because these people had the disease and they were made ritually impure or unclean by it, that this implied they had some sort of sin that led to this. And even though ritual impurity is different from sin, it still became conflated within their consciousness. And so Jesus is rejecting this assumption that this ritual impurity implied sin. And that is how he started that process of healing. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Ben. So we continue reading in verse 15, but so much more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. It sounds like people came to be healed, and he healed them, and then he went off into the wilderness to pray. But I looked at different translations, Ben, and I looked at the Greek, and it's more like the people came to be healed, and despite that, so not not and he withdrew, but it's yet. like, but he withdrew, yet yeah. he withdrew, yet right? He so withdrew. they came to be healed, yeah. yet he withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So he's going to come back and heal them. I mean, he's going to continue healing people. But maybe, you know, if he's doing this and more and more people come, he, in a sense, has to renew his power. So he has to go back yeah, to the recharge. source. Where yeah. does he do this, right? He goes to the wilderness where he goes to, again, to be with God. He goes to the wilderness to be with God and he comes back. And there's so much talk of power in these stories, right? And this is translating the Greek dunamis, where we get dynamo, right? Or dynamic, right? So there's power that he's gaining from his experience of his communion with God in the wilderness, and he comes back with that, recharged, as you say, Ben, to continue to heal with that power. Back in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, after he's coming out of the wilderness, it says he's filled with the power of the Spirit. And this, to me, is sort of in contrast to what he was doing in the wilderness, all the emptying, right? So the first thing with the fasting is he's he's emptying himself physically of, of the food, and then you know, depending on how you put the order of things, he's also emptying himself of any desire for power and any entitlement that happens because of his title, you know, the son of God or, or whatever, as, as Satan posits to him. So all of that emptying then allows him to be filled with the power of the spirit is the idea here. And then he's able to come and heal. We can even say, as you pointed out earlier, Ben, that he's emptying himself of his identity, right? That's mm. if thou be the son of God. And yeah. that's, I don't think that's something he's concerned with, you know? And of course, we've already talked about the Son of God being an earthly title anyway, right? This is the, the title of, the, of Caesar, right? And of other kings, you know, obviously also in the Old Testament, right? The, the kings were said to be sons of God. Yeah, whereas for others, this title, you know, implied some haughty sense or some prideful sense. Jesus, if he accepts that title, is accepting it in a humble, meek sense not as a, a way of wielding authority over others. 
So the next pericope is covered. We covered it in, in Mark 2, 1 through 12, the healing of the paralytic. And then we come to the call of Levi, which again, we covered that in Mark 2, 13 through 17. It's not in Matthew and it's not in John. This story is sort of compared to the fish, right? That just came previously when they got all these fish in their boats, more fish than they'd ever seen. And then Jesus says, leave it. And they walk away and they leave it. And here we come to this publican who, you know, is a rather rich person. He's there collecting all of these taxes. It says, left all, rose up and followed him. Apparently, according to the text, he just leaves all the money right there. I don't know who gets it, but he just walks away from it. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. So now he's hosting Jesus and others. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Other translations read publicans, or let's say tax collectors, and other sinners, which always makes me yeah. chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> tax Implied collectors and other sinners. sinners. Yeah. Now again, tax, <laughs> tax collectors we've covered, right, as a sort of mafia. And then other wrongdoers, let's say, or other people who are in error, right? Mm-hmm. Going mm-hmm. back to what this word is saying. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, you could say, again, with the baggage, right? The sinners are bad people versus, you know, people who are in error. And the righteous are good people. Righteous is a favorite term of Matthew. This is Luke here. But you could say he didn't come to call the people who don't think that they need healing to healing, right? He's coming to the people who who need healing. Who know that they need it. Who know that they need it, right? Yeah. Who are willing to accept him. Yeah, this statement seems almost a little tongue-in-cheek to me. Like, the Pharisees think of themselves as righteous. So Jesus' statement could be taken either as an approval of their righteousness, or it could be this sort of subtle indictment of their wickedness, since he seems to be implying that they have need to repent as on other occasions. I couldn't have put it better myself, Ben. That's that's what I was getting at. It is cheeky. It really is a mm-hmm. little cheeky. And and these are the sayings that strike me as the most authentic, right? They look just like the the aphorisms that you get in the Gospel of Thomas, right? Or in the Q Gospel. Yeah. It's like you have to think about what he says after he said it. You're like, wait, was that a compliment or an insult? Right. And you know, while you're thinking about it, he walks away, right? <laughs> exactly. The next pericope is a question about fasting we covered in Mark 2, not covered in the other evangelists. Then the plucking of the grain on the Sabbath, also the same, right? Same with the man who, with the withered hand. And now we come to Jesus healing multitudes by the sea, which we, actually, we haven't covered uh, Mark 3 yet, have we? No. Okay, so that's in Mark 3, and it's here in Matthew 4, 24 through 25. But it's not in Luke, and it's not in John. This is from verse 24. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, from beyond Jordan. When I read those couple of verses, I get those lists, you know, that repetition that speaks to me in a rhetorical way, you know, as as is intended. Lists do that. 
There's a little more to this story I want to bring in from chapter 12, verses 15 through 16. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. So a little bit of the same, there's a little bit of overlap in those two pairs of verses. And yet there's a little more detail, and of course, ending with, don't tell anybody, right? (laughs) Next, we have the choosing of the 12 in Mark, but not here in this week's reading, the Sermon on the Mount. And then we come down to the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. This is in Luke 4, 38-39. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. Now, what's striking about this story, to me, is that the only reason we know that Simon was married is because his mother-in-law got sick. Many have asked the question, was Jesus married? Here's a 30-year-old man in his time and place. Typically, he would be married, but we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us anybody's married. It just tells us that someone has a wife because her mother was sick, right? Yeah. So that's what we get here. You know, if Jesus is married and if, and if a wife is young and and if she hasn't had children, you wouldn't hear about her. She wouldn't be named. She wouldn't be talked about. She'd be at home, especially a young wife without children. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. I love that her hospitality, you know, just as soon as she's well, she's serving people, you know? (laughs) Next, we have the sick healed at evening in Luke 4, not in Matthew. It is in Mark. We covered it in chapter 1. Now, when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So we're just going to keep getting this over and over. This is the project, right? This is the program. He's eating with people and associating with people that he shouldn't be eating with and associating with according to the letter of the law, right? And he's healing people, and he's casting out demons. So verse 41, And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. There's again this idea of knowing the name uh, and that giving you some kind of power. Mm-hmm. The next prayer could be covered in this week's reading after you know, following Jesus, stilling the storm, the gathering demoniacs that you were comparing me with earlier, <laughs> the healing of this paralytic in Luke 5, 17 through 26. And this is the last chapter we're covering in this week's episode. And it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were coming out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. There it is, right? Power, this healing power that comes from being with God, with going you know, into the wilderness or into the closet, right, as it were, and going within you where the kingdom of God is found, right? The kingdom of God is within you. And behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now it's interesting because who does Jesus say is forgiving the sins? 
the construction is passive. Right. That implies that Jesus isn't the actor. He's not saying, I forgive you. They are forgiven. Yeah. He's saying, your sins are forgiven. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. passive. So he's giving credit to God in, in his language. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, so they're reasoning and he's sort of reasoning along with them. You get the sense from the King James Version that he's reading their minds. Have you ever thought of it that way, Ben? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it look yeah. like that? Yeah. That's not, that's not really what's thoughts. going on. Yeah. 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 Looking at the Greek, there's there's sort of there's some ratiocination going on on their side, and he's sort of following along with them. Yeah. And so he speaks to that and he comes out and he says, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or say, Rise up and walk. So what is it you're trying to figure out here, right? And so there's sort of another joke here, right? Because it's like, how many words? What's easier to say? You could take this very literally, yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally. You could take you could it literally. Say, is, it, is it easier to say that? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And, you know, again, this is not by English, right? By, by the Greek where it comes from. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Now we come to the question about fasting. This is in Luke 5, 33-39, not in Matthew, not in John. We did cover it in chapter 2 of Mark. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And he said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? So these people are in the presence of God, right? They're celebrating. They're not fasting. Yeah, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah, with God, right? (laughs) Yeah. So the image here is one of a, a bridegroom. That's God, we know from the Old Testament. The bride, that's Israel. That's God's people. He's He wants to marry us. This is the whole, I mean, what is there to the Old Testament? The Exodus and God yeah. wants to marry us, right? There's a time to fast and there's a time to party and feast. And now's the time to feast, right? <laughs> yeah. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then shall they fast in those days, right? It feels like Kohelet, right? Like Ecclesiastes, there's a yeah. time for everything under the sun. And he spake also a parable unto them, No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So in other words, they won't match. It'll just stick out like a sore thumb because they're different shades or, you know, one is, you know, faded and the other one's not, something like that, right? You also can't sew it together very well. Yeah. Yeah. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. Now this last verse, verse 39, is not in all of the manuscripts, but it does look like probably an interpolation from a wine connoisseur, which, you know, in Roman times, right, they really knew their wine. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. See, to me, this was like a witty quip. It might have been commentary on the fact that those who are heavily steeped in the old religious tradition, right, the old wine, they can't enjoy the good news, the new wine, 
or are not willing to try it. And so it's kind of almost like he's commenting on the fact that these old religious tradition people aren't able to appreciate the new wine, the good news that I'm offering. I love that the reading ends with that verse that we don't even know should be there and (laughs) we can't agree on what it means. This is what it's like to read the Bible, isn't it, Ben? (laughs) With questions, right? Questions are so valuable. They're so much more valuable than answers. It seems paradoxical, right? It's hard to understand, but get into the spirit of asking questions and you'll catch my drift. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ben, for being with me as always. I'd like to take a moment to thank the LDPS team for all that they do. You know, this this podcast wouldn't reach you if it weren't for not just the hours that Ben and I spend reading and studying and talking and getting on the microphone and and Ben, you know, makes whatever happened that he makes happen beyond that after the editors do their part and the editors and and what they do, you know, social media, it gets out there and their quote images. And I learned how to make quote images once Shiloh taught me, but I don't remember. So I'm grateful for our team for, for doing all of those things. Thank you also for listening and, and please like subscribe, share, find us on Facebook. I don't remember the name of our group, but Ben knows it. He doesn't remember either. This stays in. I could say it. I just <laughs> I just want to make sure I get it right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So we have a, a private group on Facebook that people can join to have discussion and stuff. It's called Latter-day Nonviolence, Pacifism, and Peace Studies. We have an actual page where we post things from the organization that's just called Latter-day Peace Studies. So those are two different things. One's a group and one is a page on Facebook. There's also an Instagram account. Um, I'm not on Instagram, so I don't know a lot about it, but it would be Latter-day Peace Studies as well. And you can see a lot of those beautiful quote images there. They're posted on Facebook. They're posted on Instagram. And then there's our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org. I wish there were a way that you could comment on each episode you hear. The closest we can come to that is, you know, come on Facebook if you, if you can stomach it and just, you know, comment uh, when we post an episode there. Otherwise, there's always YouTube. Yeah, there's YouTube. Each episode would have, you know, a comment section. You could even have a discussion there technically. And some people do that. We have comments from time to time on that. So that's a place that if you wanted to make a comment, get feedback, that's probably the easiest way to do it. And Ben and I welcome, you know, you reaching out to us for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.